Matthew chapter 6, verse 9, that's the text for this morning. We learned last week that the prayer of the Pharisees was hypocritical. Remember, they loved to be seen. And the prayer of the pagans, it was mechanical. They thought that they were heard for their many words. But the believer's prayer life should be marked by sincerity and thoughtfulness, should be distinctly different than that which Jesus characterizes the Pharisees and the pagans by. Our prayer life should be marked by sincerity and thoughtfulness. The text before us this morning has commonly been referred to as the Lord's Prayer, but it is actually probably better described as the disciples' prayer. The reason behind that is because it's a prayer that Jesus could have never prayed. He didn't need to pray it. Jesus perfectly hallowed his Father's name. He was the inauguration of the kingdom that had come. He was impeccably obedient to his Father's will. He perfectly trusted in his Father's provision. And he had no debts that needed to be forgiven. He never succumbed to temptation. And he triumphed over evil at the cross. It is a prayer that Jesus did not need to pray. This was a prayer for his disciples. In fewer than 70 words, we find a masterpiece of the infinite mind of God, who alone could compress every conceivable element of true prayer into such a brief and simple form as we see here in the Lord's Prayer or the disciples' prayer, a form that even a young child can understand, but the most mature believer can never fully exhaust. All in fewer than 70 words. Let's turn our attention to our text this morning. Let me encourage you to stand if you have the ability. Though our study this morning will confine us to verse 9, I want to read the entire prayer, verses 9 through 15. Matthew, recording Jesus' teaching, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, pens the following words. Pray then like this, our Father, in heaven... Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses." Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our great God stands forever. You may be seated. What I want to do this morning is I want to take this one verse, Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. I want to break it down into its components or into its individual phrases and study it together with you. Let me draw your attention first to this short phrase. Jesus encourages us, pray like this. Pray like this. What do we learn from those three words? Pray like this, or your Bible may say, pray then like this. Well, I think here's what we learn. It's important for us to note that Jesus' prayer here is meant to be, or understood to be, a model for his disciples. It's not simply meant to be a prayer that's memorized and just repeated rote. Now, having said that, does that mean that it is a wrong thing to have the Lord's Prayer, the disciples' prayer memorized? It absolutely does not. Does it mean that it's wrong to repeat it at various times in corporate worship or in your private worship or at times when your family may be gathered together in worship? It absolutely does not. But what we need to understand is that Jesus did not mean to give this as simply a form prayer that was meant to be mechanically repeated. 
It was a model prayer. Jesus wanted his disciples to have a model by which they could speak their own words before the Father. Luke, in his gospel, notes that Jesus had been praying in a certain place, and when he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John, that's John the Baptist, taught his disciples to pray. It's interesting to note here that that Jesus' disciples didn't ask Jesus to teach them a prayer. They asked Jesus to teach them how to pray. Okay? They didn't ask Jesus to teach them a prayer, the prayer, but rather how to pray. Jesus then gives them a model for prayer here. What followed is an outline. It was a skeleton to be used by Jesus' disciples. And so Jesus replies to them here in our text in Matthew, pray then like this, not pray this. But pray then like this, Jesus said. It was a pattern to be applied, not a mechanical prayer to be repeated. And Jesus says here in our text, autos own, it literally means thus therefore, pray thus therefore. It has the idea of along these lines or pray in this manner. Jesus says pray. Pray here is a present imperative means that we're to understand Jesus' words as being a command. That's what an imperative is. When, when we're commanded to do something in Scripture, pray is an imperative here in the text. Okay? Not a suggestion. It's a command. And it's a present imperative. That means that as believers, our lives should be marked by continual prayer, habitual prayer, ongoing prayer. Paul said pray without ceasing. Prayer is to be a habitual practice that characterizes the believer's life. John Bunyan, the 17th century Puritan preacher, once said, You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray until you've prayed. Catch that? You can do more than pray after you've prayed, but you cannot do more than pray before you pray. He's exalting the, 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 the necessary spiritual discipline of prayer. Now, the concern of Jesus in this teaching for us to address God as our Father in heaven, it has less to do with protocol and it has more to do with truth. He's trying to implant in our minds some truths upon which we can build our own prayer life. And we would do well to take some time before we approach the throne of grace in prayer and to set our minds on the truth of who God is. We'll talk here in just a moment about this word, Father, and the fatherhood of God. We'll talk about this phrase in heaven. Those aren't just some arbitrarily added words that are tacked on here. Jesus is very intentional when he says, our father, two words, and then he attaches to it the following two words, in heaven. We need to set our minds on the truth of who God is before we approach him in prayer, because it's only then that we'll come uh, to him or before him with the appropriate measures of humility and confidence. When we come in such a manner, That is, our Father who is in heaven. We come before God with that posture. God's concerns become chief. And our concerns become secondary. We're approaching Him. He is the great beneficiary. And I am the all-needy benefactor. He is God and I am not. He is master, I am subject. He is creator, I am creation. He is giver, I'm receiver. I need what He has to give. 
We come to God praying, our Father, acknowledging His fatherhood, His provision of us in heaven, that's His set-apartness, then God's concerns will become chiefly our concerns. Our petty man-centered prayers will be enlarged as we begin to realize that we're coming before a God that is bigger than we are, more powerful than we are, more majestic than our finite minds have the ability to even conceive or our words have the ability to even communicate. You see, our needs, which are very real and very tangible, will take a second place when we understand we're approaching our Father who is in heaven. The Lord's Prayer is divided into two distinct parts here. Just let your eyes kind of glaze at the text. Verses 9 through verse 15 there, you see the first three petitions. They express our concern for God's glory in relation to his name. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. His rule or his kingdom, your kingdom come. And then third, your will be done. Only after that are the second three petitions given to us, which have to do with our food. Give us this day our daily bread, our debts. Forgive us our debts, and then our temptations. Two distinct parts here. First, focusing on who God is and focusing on his glory and his name and his renown, and only then do I bring to him my very real and tangible request. They take second place to God's majesty that should characterize our prayer. You see, the Lord's Prayer encourages us to seek God's face before we seek his hand. We oftentimes seek our own agenda in prayer, our needs, our wants, our desires, but has it ever occurred to us that God also has an agenda? God's agenda is that he receives all the praise, all the honor, all the glory, all the worship that his great name is due. Do we consider that when we come before him in prayer? Not just coming, presenting my agenda. God has an agenda already. The question is, am I on board with that? The throne of grace can be abused if we come in prayer only seeking the gift and not the giver. Only seeking what God has to give to us and not the giver himself. You see, Jesus' model prayer it reorients our prayer agenda. And that's a real good thing, friends. It's a real good thing. He calls us first to focus on our hearts and our minds, to focus those things on his will and on his rule and on his name. You see, that's the essential difference between a God-centered prayer and a man-centered prayer. I don't want to make you self-conscious by any means, but I think we could all do well, we all would do well to evaluate our prayer life and ask ourselves the question, does my prayer life appear to be more man-centered than it is God-centered. And again, friends, that does not mean by any stretch of the imagination that we don't bring our very real and tangible requests and petitions before the Lord. But it does mean that we put His agenda first. A God-centered prayer and not a man-centered prayer. Oftentimes, our, our prayers are concerned with feeling better and taking the sickness away and getting us safely where we want to get. Friends, what if it's not God's agenda to get you safely where you want to get? What if it's God's agenda to call you home? You ever considered that? Again, I'm not saying that it's wrong or sinful in any way to pray those things, but oftentimes our prayer lives are just, are just centered around little old me. Let's talk for a few minutes about the fatherhood of God here. Jesus and his instructive prayer here 
without a doubt, would have been massively paradigm-shifting to the disciples. I mean, these words here, they would have not only been paradigm-shifting to the disciples, but they would have been paradigm-shifting to any Jew who heard them. You see, the Jews, they certainly believed in the fatherhood of God, but they understood this relationship uh, between father and, and, and creation merely in terms of sovereign creator father. So it was corporate father. That's the way Israel would have operated with God. Yes, he is father, but he's, cre- he's father by way of the fact that he's creator. And so he's kind of corporate father. He's not individual or personal father. You can see that when you look at the fact that God is only impersonally referred to as Father in the Old Testament 14 times. As you look from Genesis chapter 1 to Malachi chapter 4, only 14 times is God referred to as Father. And in every single instance without exception, it is a corporate reference, not an individual reference. So God is our Father by way of Him being created, not God is my Father. And you won't find a single reference to a single individual referring to God as his or her father. So careful were the Jews in holding to the transcendency of God. That's the otherness. That's the supremacy. That's the majesty. That's the high and exalted, which it is a wonderful thing. And we would do well to learn from from that high view of God. We always want to be growing in a high view of God. But so careful were the Jews in holding to the transcendence of God that they didn't even dare to repeat his covenant name. They wouldn't even say Yahweh. Wouldn't even repeat those words. They never would have come off of a pious Jew's mouth. Matter of fact, when they wrote it, they transliterated it, W-H-Y-H, what we refer to as the tetragrammaton. Didn't say it. They wouldn't even pen it. They wouldn't even scribe it. They transliterated it. You see, a distance from God was always well guarded. But here, here in our text... Matthew chapter 6, Jesus steps on the scene and not only refers to God as his father, which, by the way, he did in every single one of his New Testament prayers with the exception of Matthew chapter 27, verse 46, where he says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the only one of Jesus' New Testament prayers where he does not refer to him as Abba or Father. And it's interesting to note that right after that, right after Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He follows it up by saying, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He even follows that one instance up by referring to God as his fathers. But Jesus steps on the scene here and not only refers to God as being his father, but he encourages the disciples to pray, those followers of him, to pray addressing God as their Abba, as their father. Abba is an Aramaic word, probably in its simplest form, could be... uh, understood as daddy, maybe a little bit more, um, what's the word I'm thinking of here? Um, daddy's a good, a good way to think of it, but maybe dearest father would be a little bit better, a little more reverence, that's the word I'm thinking of there, might characterize Abba. Dearest father or dearest daddy. You see, God wasn't just to be understood as the corporate father of the nation of Israel, but now Jesus was telling his disciples that they were to refer to him as their individual father. And subsequently to all who have come to God by grace through faith. You see, Jesus was teaching his disciples that the fatherhood of God was to be the foundational awareness by which they entered into prayer with God. And I would say that the fatherhood of God should be the foundational awareness by which every Christian lives his or her Christian life. 
true of you or not true of you? That the fatherhood of God would be the foundational awareness by which the Christian lives his or her Christian life. Now, not the exclusive foundation. We've got the holiness of God, the sovereignty of God, the majesty of God, the aseity of God. Is that a new word for you? That's just a 16-cylinder Christian word, meaning that God needs nothing. He's self-sufficient. Never asked anybody forever for anything. Never asked for advice or counsel. Who has ever given to God that God should repay him for from, from him and to him and through him are all things to him be the glory forever? Amen. He needs nothing. And all of those are things upon which we build our Christian life. But the fatherhood of God speaks to the intimacy with which we entreat him, the intimacy with which we come into his presence. To address God as our Father expresses love and devotion. It speaks of his nearness and his tenderness and his desire to be entreated. God desires to be entreated by his children. He desires that we come. Matter of fact, the psalmist writes to us, the nearness of God is our good. Paul wrote to the church at Rome and he said, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry. And here it is again, Abba, Father, dearest Daddy. It's Daddy, but with a bit of reverence. Uh, Romans 15, similarly. or uh, Sorry, Galatians 4, 6, similarly. Paul says, And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his Son into our hearts, and it cries, Abba, Father, dearest Daddy. You see, our Father, those two words, they speak to the intimacy and the imminence of God, His nearness to us. We approach God, we are to approach Him understanding that He is our Father. Now, let me say something that needs to be said here, a critical distinction that needs to be made. Jesus is not teaching here, mark it down. Jesus is not teaching the universal fatherhood of God. Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, pray this way or pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed, holy is his name. He's not making a blanket statement and teaching the universal fatherhood of God. And so you say, okay, well, there are a couple of texts in the New Testament that that seem to say something like that. How do I deal with those? How do I grapple with those? Let me give you one of them. Acts chapter 17, verses 28 and 29. Okay. Paul's addressing the philosophers of Athens here at Areopagus, and he quotes one of the Greek poets who said, For we are indeed his offspring, for we are indeed God's offspring. Being God's offspring, then, we ought not to think that the, that, that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed by art and the imagination of a man. Paul quotes that. How are we to deal with? with these couple of instances in the New Testament where it says, being then God's offspring, and Paul's talking to Greek philosophers, pagans, non-believers. Well, we've highlighted this already a bit here, but we're to understand this in a general sense. God is the father of all men, and all men are brothers in the sense that God is our creator. God has created all men. But God is only Father in the sense that He is our, our good and gracious Father, the one who, can, who, who loves to be entreated by
by his children to those who have become his sons and daughters by adoption. Who have come to Jesus Christ by grace through faith have become sons and daughters of God by way of adoption. There is a distinction that needs to be made there, a critical distinction that needs to be made there. I mean, from time to time when you're listening to the evening news, you'll hear a a reporter uh, stick a microphone in somebody's face, and and you'll hear these words roll off somebody's tongue. We're all God's children, aren't we? No, we're not. And that ought not make pride well up in our hearts as much as it ought to humble us. It ought to humble us to the core. Because I'm reminded of a verse in John 15, 16, where where John writes, For you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit. He adopted us. We did adopt him. Romans chapter 3. No one seeks God. No one understands. Isaiah 53. We all like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned to our own way and our own master. We see this clear distinction in 1 John 3, 1, John writes, See what kind of love the Father has given to us. Your your translation, and I love this word, the ESV omits it, but see what kind of love the Father has lavished upon us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. But then he immediately contrasts that with the world, and he says this. He says the reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. You see a clear distinction there between the children of God by adoption, on whom which God has lavished his love and called them his children, and then those who are children merely by being created beings made in his image, Genesis 1.27. Let's talk about these two words, in heaven. In heaven. If our Father should hearken us to understand the imminence, the closeness, the nearness, and the intimacy that we as adopted sons and daughters have with our Father. Then the two words in heaven, in heaven, tell us something about his transcendence, something about his otherness, something about his holiness, something about his set-apartness. You see, the words in heaven, they speak about God's majesty. When we approach God, we do so with both a sense of warm intimacy, our Father, and a sense of reverent awe in heaven. You see, Jesus is doing far more than just telling us where the Father lives when he adds those two words, in heaven. These words are very intentional. They're meant to show us our place, really, They're meant to remind us who we are and to humble us. Remember the psalmist says in Psalm 115.3, Our God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. Interpretation, we're not and we don't. Has it ever occurred to you, I'm sure it has, that your Father in heaven, along with Jesus Christ, who is currently seated at his right hand, is already being worshipped there? Whether we hallow his name here or not, there are innumerable angels that unceasingly worship and exalt God and his name 60 seconds a minute, 60 minutes an hour, 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 52 weeks a year, 
since their creation. They've been hallowing his name there in heaven. The seraphs worship saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's Isaiah 6.3. And then in Revelation 4.8, we see the four living creatures who day and night John tells us, never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And again, prior to the creation of the angelic host, God was glorifying his own great name within the Trinity for all eternity. Do you understand what Matthew 6, 9 is doing? It's simply an invitation to join the party. But in doing so, We come recognizing that God is our Father, imminence and intimacy, but at the same time, He is in heaven. Transcendence, majesty, holiness, set-apartness, otherness, reverence. What Jesus is emphasizing here, I think, is that we're to pray with a keen awareness of the otherness of God. Our culture today seems dominated, and this is a very sad fact to me, by shallow, man-centered theology. Our culture seems to be dominated by, by a high view of religious experience. Our, our culture today seems to be dominated, and even our, our Christian culture seems to be dominated with a consumer mentality that has just been cloaked in church garb. I mean, I think that there is a sense in which we have lost sight of God's transcendence. And subsequently, or as a result, we begin to relate to God more like our buddy here on earth than our Father who is in heaven. And that's one of the reasons that I love the tried and true hymns of the faith. You see, they don't don't lull us to sleep with sappy, sentimental, over-repeated, man-centered theology. Now, uh, let me just make a quick note here. I'm not saying that all new and modern praise and worship songs do. By saying this is one of the reasons why I love the the tried and true theology of the hymns, I'm, I'm not making the distinction that says that everything that's written circa 1900 is not. That's certainly not the case. But I think, unfortunately, our Our worship music, what you listen to when you turn the radio on, characterizes much of the modern evangelical Christian culture. I love you, God, and I've always loved you, God, and I'll never stop loving you, God, and help me love you more, God, and bless me, and those aren't wrong in and of themselves. You just... See, me, 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 me. It's that consumer mentality that has just been cloaked in church garb. And it it has infiltrated our our worship services, where, where we can scarcely call what takes place in some church buildings on Sunday mornings worship of God to begin with. Because it's not that. It's worship of man. It's worship of me. I come to make me feel good. I come to stroke my spiritual ego. It's like a Christian country club. And and, and our, our, our worship 
is reflective of that. Our worship and song is reflective of that. I love some of these ancient songs, though, beloved by the saints that lift our souls to the throne by by reminding us of bedrock truths of God's character, his nature, and his attributes. Take, for instance, these words penned by Walter Chalmers Smith, familiar tune to many of you, immortal, invisible God, only wise, in light, inaccessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, the ancient of days, almighty, victorious, thy great name we praise. Where did you hear me in there? You didn't. Unresting, unhasting, silent as light, nor wanting or wasting, thou rulest in might, thy justice like mountains, high soaring above thy clouds, which are fountains of goodness and love. Where did you hear me in there? We didn't. All laud we to render, O help us to see, tis only thy splendor of light hideth thee. Only then do you begin to hear some of me in this, but it's only after who we've established, or only after we have established who God is, that we join the party. You see, when we approach God, we must remember that we're approaching the immortal, invisible God who wraps himself in light, which, by the way, that is a good. You hear that in a modern praise song? God who wraps himself in light, and that's Psalm 104, too. And who's inaccessibly hid from our eyes. You must remember that, the transcendence of God. Our Father, He is, but He's in heaven. He's other than. Let me illustrate this again. Most of us are probably familiar with C.S. Lewis's book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's the book in the well-loved children's series, The Chronicle of Narnia. In The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Lewis tells the story of four siblings, that's Peter, Susan, Edmund, and Lucy, who find their way into the land of Narnia, and they do so by way of a magic wardrobe. The story revolves around the children's interaction with Aslan, the lion, the king of Narnia, who they come to learn through Mr. and Mrs. Beaver is actually the king of Narnia. But Lucy, having never heard of Aslan, asked Mrs. Beaver, Mr. Beaver, is he a man? Aslan, a man, Mr. Beaver? replied, certainly not. I tell you, he's the king of the wood, the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who the king of the beast is? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. The conversation goes on. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe, she asks. I feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, make no mistake, said Miss Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or else they're just silly. Lucy asks, then he isn't safe? Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Miss Beaver is telling you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he is good. That's the distinction. Okay? God is good. He's our Father, but He is not safe. He's in heaven. 
think there's a great lesson for us in Lewis's allegorical story here. You see, when Jesus calls us to entreat God as our Father, he again reminds us of the intimacy that we, his children, enjoy. But when Jesus adds the words or the phrase, in heaven, he reminds us that God is God and we are not. He is transcendent and holy, and we dare not barge into his presence with our man-centered demands. You see, we as humans and we as Christians subsequently, we, we like to find the balance between things. We talk about that a lot, right? We've got to find the balance between this and that or the balance between this or that. Well, Christian, let me tell you that there are few balances in the Christian life. There aren't many balances in the Christian life. The, the Bible isn't full of balances. You know what the Bible's full of? Tensions. That's unsettling for some of us especially if you have a personality like I do that kind of likes everything in its own little box and lined up in its own little way and everything a spot and a spot for everything and tension is challenging. But that's what the Bible presents us with. More than balances, the Bible presents us with a bunch of tensions. And we shouldn't mention or shouldn't miss rather the tension in the opening words of Jesus' model prayer. We address God intimately as Father, but then we must immediately recognize his infinite greatness with the words in heaven. See, we're invited to come, but when we come, we must never forget that we are standing on holy ground. Solomon, wise Solomon, he reminds us with these words here. He says, be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for your God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Ecclesiastes 5.2. We ought to always be growing, believers. Let me get your eyes and your attention here in a high view of God. I pray that one of the things that marks us as a local church, one of, the, one of the distinctives that marks us as a local church, among some other things, is that we have a high view of God. And subsequently, a high view of his word as being authoritative and sufficient for all matters of life and faith. But we ought to have an ever-growing high view of God. Jesus tells us that we are to come before God, our Father who is in heaven, and we are to pray like this, hallowed be your name. That's high view of God. The word hallowed comes from the Greek word hagiidzo, means to pronounce holy or to set apart something as holy. You see, the name of God is already holy. We don't make it holy. We don't make God's name holy when we come before him in prayer and we hallow his name. He's holy in and of himself. That's the aseity of God. He needs nothing. We make we, we don't give him anything he didn't already have. He needs us, not one single bit. He already is what he is apart from us. But he gives us the ability to come and to hallow his name, to treat his name as holy in our lives. That's what it means. When we come before God, the first thing that ought to be on our mind, what Jesus is telling us here in this model prayer is we ought to be praying that, God, your name would be so great, so exalted, so high, so marvelous, so magnificent, so adored in my life. Make that be so. You see, if you begin praying in those types of terms, everything that follows will be distinctly different. It's because we're reorienting our heart and our minds properly. hallowed be thy name, is to ask God that we would reverence and esteem his name above all names. Work in me, God, in such a way that I would both see and show the unsurpassed glory of your name. 
You see, to pray in such a way removes us from the center of the picture of our prayers. And again, friends, that's a real good thing. Let's talk about the name or the names of God here for a few minutes. You see, the name of God, it's not the combination of the letters G-O-D. Rather, God's names represent his character and his nature and his attributes. Another way to say that is that God's names are one of the ways in which he reveals himself. Moses asked God in Exodus chapter 3, If I come to the people of Israel and I say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them or what shall I tell them? And here's how God responds to Moses. He says, Say to them, I am who I am. Which that literally, the word there is Yahweh. I am. I am Yahweh. And he said, Say to this people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Tell them Yahweh has sent me to you. You see, in our current culture, names are oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes given without much thought for their meaning. They're just simply labels that are meant to identify people. But that wasn't the case in Jesus' Semitic culture. In Jewish culture, a name was considered to indicate character. In other words, the name and the qualities associated with the name went together. The psalmist reminds us, Psalm chapter 20, some trust in chariots and other trust in horses, but we trust in the name. You could substitute the character, but our trust is in the character, the name of the Lord our God. And friends, I'll tell you this, there is a promise revealed in every name of God. Every one of God's names that is given to us in Scripture is given to us with a promise of God's nature, his character, and his attributes. Here are just a few of those. Elohim, that's how God revealed himself at creation in Genesis 1.1. He's not only the creator of, of all life, but he is the creator of all spiritual life as well. Unless he comes in, and wrecks and decimates your life and brings you to the point where you see the cross as being your only hope, then you've not been born again. But it is Elohim who makes a man or a woman born again, who creates spiritual life in a person, such that 2 Corinthians 5.17 tells us that if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Elohim, he's the creator. You know him in that way? It's one of his names. There's a promise there. You're latching on to that? You're living in line with that? How about El Elyon, the God Most High? Refers to God's rule over the heavens and the earth. David writes in Psalm 57, verse 2, I cry out to God, most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Hey, there's a great way to pray, by the way. We oftentimes pray, God, will you please fulfill my purpose for me? In other words, God, will you get on my agenda and hearken to my wants and my needs and my Christian demands, though we wouldn't necessarily call them that? David says, I cry out to El Elyon, the God Most High, who fulfills his purpose for me. How about Jehovah? It's the name whereby God reveals himself as our Redeemer. Is he your Redeemer, God? Is he Jehovah to you? You see, after God determined to destroy the earth by flood because the wickedness of man had become so great on the earth, he gave Noah plans to build an ark. And after its completion, Genesis chapter 7, verse 16, we read this. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God commanded him, and the Lord, Jehovah, shut him in. He's our Redeemer. 
He's the one who shuts the door, who seals us with the promised Holy Spirit that we would have safe passage to the celestial shore. Do you know Jehovah? It's one of his names. And therein is revealed a promise to us. How about Jehovah Shalom? The Lord is our peace. That was the name by which Gideon hallowed God's name by raising an altar to God that bore that name, Jehovah. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. This was the name uh, that, that was given to us when, when Abraham found the ram in the thicket in place of Isaac. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. How about the Lord is our righteousness? Became the name by which God revealed himself to Jeremiah during the captivity. How about this? Just prior to the birth of Christ, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear. Take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She shall bear a son, and you shall call his name what? Jesus. You know what it means? The one who will save his people from their sin. That's what John the Baptist said about Jesus. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It's Yeshua. It means Savior. And then speaking of the captain of our salvation again, we read these words. God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. He alone, friends, has the name that is above all names. His name is supreme. All other names are secondary at best. To his name, every knee will one day hit the deck. Question. Has yours? Have you bowed a knee before the name that is above all names? You are God, and I'm not. You are master, and I'm subject. You're creator, and I'm creation. You're transcendent above the heavens. You are God most high. You are the righteous one, the holy one, the one to whom we must remove our sandals to come into your presence because we're standing on holy or hallowed ground. You bow to knee before him. You can bow it now or you can bow it later, but you'll bow it one day or another. How do we hallow? We'll land the plane here. How do we hallow God's name here? Let me give you just a few closing thoughts here. I think hallowing God's name or, or setting apart God's name as holy or recognizing God's name as being holy in our hearts and our minds, it begins in the heart. Hallowing God's name as holy begins in the heart. I'm reminded of 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15. Peter writes, sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. It literally means set apart. It's the same root Greek word there. Set apart Christ as, as Lord. In your hearts. Hallow Christ as Lord in your hearts. That's literally what the text says, 1 Peter 3.15. You see, when we sanctify Christ, when we, we hallow his name in our hearts, we'll also hallow his name in our lives. Let me give you just a few thoughts here. We hallow God's name by having true and worthy thoughts about him. You know, I mentioned last week, Tozer uh, said, 
one of the, the most foundational things about you is what comes into your mind when you think about God? Is that we're hallowing God by having true and worthy and noble thoughts. You think about the list that's in Philippians 4, 8. If anything is true, if anything is praiseworthy, if anything is noble or admirable or excellent, think about these things. All of those adjectives there describe our great God. He's true, he's pure, he's noble, he's lovely, he's righteous, he's admirable, he's excellent, he's praiseworthy. Having high thoughts, true and worthy and noble thoughts about God. False ideas about the sovereign are irreverent. False ideas about God are irreverent. Number two, we hallow God's name by being careful of how we speak about him. Not only by fostering or cultivating true and worthy thoughts about him, but being careful about how we speak about him, not only to others, but also to him. By using biblical language, the psalmist challenges us us here in Psalm 141, set a guard, O Lord, over my mouth. Keep watch over the door of my lips. It's a good prayer. My hallowing God by being careful about how I speak about him. And then thirdly here, and this, this is not an exhaustive list by any stretch of the imagination here, but we hallow God's name when we act in obedience to his will. Jesus said, if you love me, finish the sentence. You'll obey me. If you love me, you'll obey me. You'll hallow my name. You'll be obedient to my commandments. You'll live in, in alignment or in accordance with my will. How you doing there, friends, on a practical level? Are you hallowing God's name? Jesus is just giving us a model prayer here, an outline, a pattern, a skeleton, so to speak, that we can build our own prayer life off of. But we must remember that when we enter into his presence, he's near and he's good, but he's in heaven. He's transcendent and he is not safe. I come before him with reverential awe. But even in the daily outworking of my practical life, I can hallow his name. Set it apart. Sanctify it as being holy in my life and in my thoughts and in my actions and in my desires and in my motivations. How are we doing there, friends?